0: How can we increase economic production, economic efficiency on reservations? And guess what? It has a lot to do with these sort of like uniquely bad property rights on reservations. If you converted a interest allotment to just fee simple ownership rights, then the owners of that land would have land that they could then sell. And the value of that land would be between $150,000 to $700,000 more then it counterfactually would have been in the state in which they wouldn't be able to sell it anyway. But that's the number you get.
1: As the U.S. developed into a country, the treatment of Native Americans by European settlers evolved from tribal genocide into something ostensibly more humane, cultural assimilation. In the late 19th century, the white founder of an Indian boarding school said that educating a Native American would kill the Indian in him and save the man. The strategy called for Indian reservations to become private property, but the unintended consequences are troubling to this day. Hello again, I'm Armin Alney, and this is How the World Works from UCLA Anderson's School of Management. Assistant Professor Christian Dippel teaches global macroeconomics at UCLA Anderson. He's also an expert on Native American economic development and the link between disaffected working classes and their shift to populist politics. Professor, welcome.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Back to the question of private property and uh, Indian lands. You quote uh, President uh, Teddy Roosevelt as talking about the General Allotment Act and saying it's a mighty pulverizing engine to break up the tribal mass. What's that about?
0: Well, what Roosevelt was referring to was, it really was an act that was passed by a coalition of interests. And um, some of the interests in the background, as you already alluded to, were reformers that at the time were called friends of the Indians, who really did have the Native Americans' welfare at heart, I think is, is unequivocally true. But there were other interests as well, and one of the interests that was there in the background as well, joining this coalition for the Indian Allotment Act, was land speculation and freeing up land. So at this point in time, in 1901, the majority of reservations, their land mass, had been settled by treaty. And in most cases, when the treaties were made between the U.S. government, represented by the army and the tribes, They gave them a lot more land that, in hindsight, they really wanted to have given them. So they really wanted to free up more of that land. And so what Teddy Roosevelt was referring to in his address is the idea that the policy was designed was that you were going to take a reservation, survey it. Once it was surveyed, you could allot it. Allotting it meant that you gave every household 160 acres, so essentially the same amount of land that was given through a homestead at the time. And then if you had land left over, which in almost all cases you did, you could sell that land as surplus land. So you could free up some of the land. And then as an added side benefit at the time, what you were left over with or what you were left with at the end was a collection of Native American households all living adjacent to one another on 160-acre plots that they owned. And essentially there was no room left for a tribe, certainly as political entities, how much he thought of them as political entities, you know, that's that's probably a separate conversation to have.
1: Well, it's a fascinating conversation, and I do want to have it. But before we do, and before we talk about the consequences of dividing up the land, as you describe, it seems to me this was very paternalistic, because as I indicated, and as you have reported, cultural assimilation was the goal and the idea of killing the Indian in him to save the man. That was to make them more
0: like us. You know, I I think there's a real danger in in today's climate in talking about these sorts of things, of taking things out of the context of their time. And in many ways, the historical legacy of Indian assimilation is a legacy of two policies. The first policy was um, the policy that started Indian allotment in the context of 1887, which I'm going to talk about in a second. The second policy was the policy that ended Indian allotment, and did that in a very arbitrary, you might say, way, which I'm also gonna talk a little bit more about, and that happened in 1934 as, as part of FDR's administration. And so in both cases, you had acts of Congress that were passed or that were supported by people that would have called themselves, and I think friends of the Indians at the time, you know, these policies often have very unintended consequences. And so, what we're seeing today is the unintended consequence not just of implementing Indian allotment in 1887, but also of the way it was ended very abruptly in a very sort of ad hoc fashion in 1934. Um, having said that, I, I realize I digress a little bit in answering your question. So, let me get back to your real question about the friends of the Indians and their culturally assimilationist motives in 1887. I th- I think I mean cultural assimilation sounds in today's context um like something we're going to be highly critical of of course but at that time in 1887 when you read what people were saying so you were quoting Richard Brett who was a close friend of Ulysses Grant who himself viewed himself as a as a as a friend of the Indians and Richard Brett viewed himself as a friend of the Indians. He was a founder of the first Indian boarding school. And when you read about the stuff he was saying and thinking about Native Americans, I think there is not a shadow of a doubt that he wanted to help them. And the question is whether the policies that were implemented then actually ended up doing that. Uh, And so the context of the time, 1887, Indian allotment, this is three years before the massacre of Wounded Knee. So Wounded Knee happens in 1890, and it marks really the final military defeat of the great Plains tribes. So up into the 1860s, 1870s, you had the Lakota Empire. Before that, you had the Comanche Empire. You had truly sort of powerful Plains Indian tribes that could really hold their own in the struggle against the U.S. Army as it was sort of accompanying settlers moving westward. And that really ends in the 1880s with the arrival of the Hodgkin's gun, which is like this automated machine gun that can just fire so many bullets that just there's nothing Native American tribes can do against that. And so they're just really defeated in 1890 and there's no way that they can anymore pose any sort of threat. Sure. So I should say before I talk in more detail about this, I'm going to be referring to LOTs and what LOTs are, is they're simply the recipients of allotments the majority of land on reservations today is still under tribal control. Part of the reason for that is that half of all reservations were never allotted. Therefore, by definition, the the only land on them is tribal. Of the allotted land, about half of it had been converted to fee simple by 1934. So you're talking about roughly half of a third of the reservation lands when we're talking about this land that is trapped in this awkward in-between legal space, so about 15%. We were considering doing something like a back-of-the-envelope calculation of, here's the total value of GDP, of annual revenue lost to the reservations. So we're using this spatial satellite imagery data, which tells us about differences in agricultural land use and differences in land development. What is very difficult to say is how much more dollars in income would you be making if you had your land in 10% more in agricultural use, especially because you also have this trade-off between the two types of economic activity. So you have agricultural production and then you have land development. Land development is arguably the more important one, but just going off the satellite imagery, we really can't tell you what that land development is. So we can't distinguish a couple of staples that are being built to do ranching from a casino building. The data is simply silent on that. It's difficult to convert it directly into a foregone income measure. What we can measure directly is we can do foregone agricultural production, but it's measured in purely statistical terms as a percentage difference in agricultural production, in land under agricultural cultivation. And alternatively, We can look at foregone development, which can be proxying for any kind of land development. And then we come up with this index measure to to aggregate the two. But whichever way you cut it with the data we have, it's not easy to then convert that into an income measure. What we can do is we can convert it into a wealth measure. Rather than saying this is the income you have foregone, we can at least say this is the wealth that you may be foregoing by having your land trapped in this in-between legal status. And then when you talk about the reservation overall, you need to bear in mind that only about one sixth of the land is, is affected by this particular legal status. For the average 160 acre allotment, the difference in land value, and we need to sort of jump through a few statistical hoops to calculate it, because the problem is that you really don't measure land values on the reservation itself. By virtue of the fact that it can't be sold, you don't have any market transaction data to observe. And so what we do is we map it to neighboring land from the county assessor data. But we can only do that for three states where the county assessor's data is um, freely available. And so we do that for, I believe we do that for Washington State, Montana, and Utah. And that's just because those are three states that have a lot of reservations, but they also have county assessor data. So that's just a feature of how they run their county assessor data that allowed us to do that. Casino proceeds are big in the narrative, but they don't actually move the average Native American income all that much. And then to further answer your question on, are there any reservations where allotment was a big deal? The answer is no, and it's precisely because To get rich of a casino, you need to have relatively few members. And the places that have few members are small. And the small places were never allotted to begin with because it wasn't worth it for the federal government to go and survey the small places because they were really going after the big places where they could free up more land. And so the story of the Chumash in Santa Ines, or the story of them that were in, in Minnesota is sort of like a reversal of fortunes. In many ways, these were the kind of like small clusters of Native Americans that no one was even thinking about 90 years ago. But then when the gaming compacts came around, they found themselves in the fortuitous position of being relatively small, which made it relatively easy to build a casino to sort of the local politics could be resolved pretty quickly. And you're close to an urban center where people have money to spend on a casino. And so you have this reversal of fortune stories. But like I said, if your main concern is with median incomes in the entire Native American populations, those examples, they don't move the needle very much.
1: You mentioned the Chumash. I think there are 150 members or so of the Chumash band. What about the Morongo band in near Palm Springs?
0: Similar story. I mean, I'm not going to be able to pull up their uh, population number off the cuff, but they're pretty small. Being close to Palm Springs is beneficial, and so they're certainly one of the better of tribes, and they most definitely were not before casinos came around.
1: Well, back to the Acts of 1887 and 1934. Tell us what the first one did, what the second one did, how they were different, and how that has left us uh, with a uh, hodgepodge of ownership so what
0: happens in 1887 is you have Congressman Dawes starting the Dawes Act or introducing the Dawes Act into Congress, which comes on the back of a number of attempts to introduce allotment acts. And this was the first one that passed. It was widely supported by different friendly organizations uh, that labeled themselves as Friends of the Indian End. And so the idea of the Dawes Act was, the way it was written into law was you give every household essentially a homestead we're not going to call it a homestead but it's 160 acres for a household when everyone has been allotted you basically can sell the surplus land it goes into the proceeds from the sales can go into a trust that will benefit the tribes and then eventually when this thing has sort of worked its way through all the reservations eventually what you would end up having is you would have no reservations left because all you have left is neighborhoods of native american private households clustered adjacent to one another but at that point you really no longer are in any need of having a tribe as a tribal identity because all it is is native american neighborhoods all of which are essentially homesteaders so the the way it was to be instituted and and the way it actually then worked itself out was that a household would receive their allotment in trust initially and the idea was that you wanted to protect the Native American recipients of their private land from selling their land under value, from selling it too quickly, from selling it and then realizing that they would rather not have sold it. So there was this notion that we need cultural assimilation, private property, and particularly private property to land, is the key to cultural assimilation. But we need to have this trust period in which we protect the LOTs from making mistakes.
1: Okay, so as I understand it, the device for achieving assimilation was the white concept of private property. Indians were offered 160 acres of reservation land per family, but to protect them from the bad judgment they might have, the land was held in trust until they could prove they were competent. And that raised another question, who decides when they're competent?
0: So in the language of the time, the local Indian agent is what they were called, what they were was field officers. In the 1890s had been switched over from the War Department, which is where it had historically been housed, over into the Department of the Interior, where it still is today. And so these field officers were essentially managing the reservations, and they would make the decisions. So they would um, be in charge of the allotting. And then initially every LOT was going to hold the land for a 25-year trust period, after which they would receive the land in fee simple. And so fee simple simply is how you and I own our property. It just means we have full property rights. And then in 1906, the thing didn't really get going. It was passed in 1887, but didn't really get going until 1906. And one change that they made in 1906 is they gave the local Indian agent more discretionary power in determining when a person was competent. In other words, they could declare someone competent a lot quicker than 25 years, or they could choose not to declare someone competent even after 25 years. And then you have this sort of allotment process working its way through. One thing that they had to do was they had to survey each reservation before they could allot it surveying being sort of a necessary condition for being able to demarcate a 160-acre plot. And so surveying was expensive and difficult, and so they moved through sequentially. And so one consequence of that was that by 1934, when they ended allotment, they had only gotten through about half of all reservations, which means... With the entire policy being ended in 1934, roughly half of all reservations were never allotted, either before or after 1934. And then in the other half of reservations that were allotted, what you ended up getting is you get it in 1934 when they ended this process, you ended up getting that about half of all LOTs had at that point been declared competent by their local agent, had received the land in fee simple, and still have it in fee simple today, to the extent that their heirs still own that land. And the other half, they had never been declared competent by the local agent. And so their land was still in trust in 1934. And so what happens in 1934 is the thinking in the Bureau of Indian Affairs changes a lot with the appointment of a new head of that department, John Collier. He was a personal friend of FDR's and FDR appointed him to that position. And he also, unequivocally, I think, was a friend of the Indian in the sense of having good intentions.
1: But by 1934, you say, when FDR took office, those agents, the field officers, had only allocated half the land and there had been problems.
0: There was a lot of corruption in the process as it panned out in the 1910s, 1920s, and early 1930s. One of the sources of corruption was you would hear stories of Indian agents manipulating potential LOTs into choosing bad land for themselves in order for them to be able to then free up as surplus land the more attractive portions of the reservation for white settlers.
1: It would be bad from a white standpoint because maybe you couldn't grow crops on it or couldn't uh, uh, run cattle on it or whatever, but not necessarily... Uh, The Indians wouldn't look at it the same way.
0: So you're right. How much do we really know about that? In our data, because we're using modern satellite data at a very fine-grained resolution, we can say a lot about land quality as we understand it today, which is not all that different from how a farmer would have understood land quality in 1920. So you talk about the amount of water in the ground, proximity to water sources, you talk about the natural soil type, fertility, elevation, ruggedness, features like that, that are immutable features of the land. There were people at the time who said Native Americans, at least some of them, care about other stuff. They care about proximity to their family's burial ground, which might happen to be on bad land, but they would rather be close to that. They might care about for proximity to a hill that has no agricultural value, but might have some other significance for them. So it's entirely possible that they cared somewhat about other parts of the land, other features or characteristics of the land, but there were also just these anecdotes.
1: So now as a result of all this, there are lands that have different ownerships, different, uh, different jurisdictions, I gather, that come into
0: conflict. How does that work? Yeah, so this is really the unintended consequence of ending this act. You have the entire notion of Indian allotment being started by friends of the Indians, and then you have the entire thing being halted by a new generation of friends of the Indians in 1934. And one thing that I think, as I already said, they successfully achieved was to prevent further erosion of Native American land losses. So when you talk to Native Americans today, I think the idea of having a reservation to fall back on as a sort of spatial representation of your cultural homeland, that's an important and powerful thing. And and having prevented that from disappearing 90 years ago, I think was unequivocally a very positive thing. The other thing, however, that they did was... They just froze in time this process of allotment. And so any individual allotment that had been converted into fee simple at that time remained in fee simple forever, which meant the owners of that land could do with it whatever they chose to do with it. Any tribal lands that had been unallotted at the time remained unallotted, and are still tribal lands today with a few exceptions. And every allotment that had been made before 1934, but not converted into fee simple was never converted into fee simple. So your interest status in 1934 stuck with you until 2020 It's still in place today. There's a few minor exceptions, but by and large, that's approximately almost completely true. And so it's this in-between land that suffers from this really weird legal status. Because what it is, is that the claimants on that land, the LOTs and their descendants, they have what is legally called a usufruct right. They can enjoy the uses and the fructus of the land, which means they can use and enjoy it. They can work it or they can lease it and earn the proceeds. They have clear rights to any proceeds from leasing out the land. They can also fence it in. So they have exclusion rights. They can say, this is my land. What they can't do is they can't sell it. And when you can't sell it, you can't collateralize it. In other words, you cannot take it to a bank and say, I would like to take out a mortgage or I would like to take out a line of credit on this land. Because if if you can't sell it, then the bank can't get it from you if you default on the loan. And therefore, you're not going to get a loan. And therefore, you can't get the capital you need to invest on the land. And so one of the major problems it leads to is severe underinvestment on the land by virtue of not being able to sell it and therefore not being able to collateralize it. The second thing that happened was that the BIA prevented LOTs from writing wills for their heirs. And when you can't control your testation, so when you can't control which of your heirs is going to get the land, what happens is that under tenancy in common, they all have equal undivided claim on the land. And so the problem that creates is It creates this fragmentation of ownership claims over generations and so there's this famous case of a single plot and the reason it's famous is not that it's actually even the worst of the cases it's just that it was part of a report that came to the supreme court in 1987 where they talk about this one allotment in 1987 that had over 400 claimants the smallest of which earned a single cent every four years from leasing revenues because they were the distant cousin of a distant cousin of a distant cousin of the original. And so, what it does is when you're just leasing out the land, it just creates sort of like high operational costs of giving up the proceeds. But it's not really the worst of it. The worst of it is just creates these huge transaction costs of really making any kind of decisions about what to do with the land. And so, what you have on reservations now is you have this coexistence of four types of land. You have this allotted trust land, which is in this awkward, legal, no man's land, where it's just clearly a bad state to be in. Then you have fee simple land that is just like any other land, wholly owned by the owner, uh, but that can be owned by a tribal member, or it could be sold to a non-tribal member. So that's the third kind of situation is you have privately owned land within the jurisdictional boundaries of a reservation. So the way you should think about a reservation today is It has boundaries, but not everything inside of the boundaries actually belongs to the reservation. And in fact, there's quite a few reservations where the majority of the population is not a tribal member because they're just owning fee simple land that was sold to them in most cases by the recipients of allotments many years ago, and they live on a reservation, but they're not part of the jurisdictional control of the reservation. And then the fourth and biggest type of land is tribal land that is still tribally controlled, although legally speaking, it's in trust with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, we would call that tribal control. And so you have this weird coexistence of four types of ownership regimes within the same polity. And so one paper that we just brought out is purely just focused on the efficiency cost of that. So all we do is we compare adjacent plots of different types and we try to estimate the transaction costs that arrive from this awkward interest status that got locked in in 1934.
1: That goes back to the friends of the Indians and what are the Indians actually getting out of this?
0: Yeah, so, so in 1934, the thinking was, well, we have to protect these LOTs because clearly there's instances. And you know how pervasive those instances really were was never estimated. So they became a dominant narrative in the 1930s, but no one knows how important they actually were. How common was it actually for, and I'm not denying that it happened. I'm just making the point, we actually don't know how bad of a problem this was. All we know is that it became a dominant narrative That came to dominate John Collier's thinking in designing, writing the Indian Reorganization Act. And so that's what they did.
1: One of the problems, as I understand it, is that you have, then, as you indicated before, different jurisdictions. You have uh, different people enforcing the law uh, within the reservation, uh, and they may or may not cooperate with one
0: another. That's exactly right. So the research that we have done that is sort of like concluded papers is are now focused on the land use efficiency. And we're finding this really inefficient usage of the intrust land today using modern day satellite imagery. And we're proposing some solutions to this. And the two obvious solutions are, you either return this allotted trust land to tribal control, in which case it is going to be somewhat better managed, but comes with the additional upside of making sure that the cohesion of the land base is maintained. The other alternative, is to see through the process of allotment as it was envisioned 100 years ago, and actually make this allotted trust land into fee simple land, and give the owners of that land the right to do with it whatever they please to do with it, including collateralizing it with a bank to invest on it, and clarifying this multitude of conflicting ownership claims that makes it impossible to get anything done. So that is sort of like the purely economic lens on how can we increase economic production, economic efficiency on reservations. And guess what? It has a lot to do with these sort of like uniquely bad property rights on reservations. And then there's this whole other thing, which is jurisdictional conflicts. And this is something that at this point in time, our knowledge about that is still pretty anecdotal.
1: Is there any sort of entity, whether you call it friends of the Indians, I don't think that would be an appropriate terminology. Uh, In this context today, are the Native Americans themselves uh, organized in such a way that they are trying to approach this on a comprehensive basis? Or does it seem that it's uh, all going to be ultimately worked out, if it ever is, uh, on a very localized basis? That's an interesting
0: question. So there's nothing like what you don't have is you don't have any of these old organizations having survived to the present day so for instance when you think about the national association for the advancement of colored people that was founded over 100 years ago and it's still active and important today nothing like that exists for for native americans what does exist is there's a whole bunch of collaborations primarily with an economic development perspective so there's annual conferences annual exhibitions run by tribal representatives Almost all tribes are part of a variety of organizations. So there's two or three big nationwide organizations that either combine all of the polities. There's um, one or two umbrella organizations where these tribes try to organize jointly. And then there's a whole bunch of umbrella organizations that have a more economic motive. A lot of it has to do with jurisdictional questions that have nothing to do with crime, but more with commerce. So a lot of Native American reservations today still have very awkward contractual arrangements with their economic environs, usually not part of what's called uniform commercial code. So they have their own tribal commercial codes, which makes it often very difficult for outside enterprises to operate on a reservation and know exactly who would arbitrate a legal conflict and what happens if I deliver my shipment, but I don't get paid, who's in charge there? If you're asking me about what sort of national organizations exist, the ones that do exist are primarily concerned with economic development, and there's quite a few of those, and they're doing great work, and there is a lot of diffusion of knowledge and successful development strategies.
1: And you're able to help them as an economist because you study the uh, the value of different uh, parcels of land and, and uh Uh, what their uh, economic potential might
0: be. You know, I, I don't think they need a lot of help. I think the thing that they really needed is they needed indigenous human capital, especially of the legal sort. So figuring out how to delineate their rights and their local authority relative to the state governments and relative to the federal government. And that's really a story of the 1970s. So on many reservations, they have an enormous capacity now for knowing what they want to do and it just becomes a matter of actually implementing it. You know how cumbersome and inefficient and frustrating local politics can be and they suffer from the same local politics problems that entities suffer. So there's a lot of infighting and those kinds of things but those are things that need to be resolved in a decentralized manner. Uh, There is a couple of affiliations with researchers. So there's a research center at the University of Arizona. That makes sense. That's uh, close to a number of reservations. There's a research center where I was just last month in Montana, in Bozeman. There's an affiliation with the Hoover Institution at Stanford, where we have an annual conference. Those are places where you have researchers like myself intersecting with Native American lawyers, Native American business owners. And there's a lot of learnings. I would say I learned a hell of a lot more from them than they learn from me, but you know occasionally if they need a precise estimate of something that they already know to be important but they just need a number they can turn to the researchers and just get the number from them
1: i know that you have in the uh, in your research a partner who is in fact a native american but you come from germany
0: mm-hmm.
1: and why is it that the germans have such an interest in the wild west of america in the 19th century
0: yeah that's a, that's an interesting question so I I believe it's really down to this one author who wrote a series of fake travel biographies in the 1870s and 1880s in Germany. This guy was called Karl May. And he wrote these incredibly captivating stories. He wrote about 70 books, and I have about 60 of them. He wrote these travel biographies, which had included him. He called himself Old Shatterhand traveling the wild west with his apache friend winnetou and they would have all these adventures they would be fighting evil comanche who were hostile to the apache but most of the time they would be fighting evil cattle thieves or evil railroad executives trying to kick people out of their houses these novels became incredibly influential in germany and then they stirred a lot of controversy when it came out. Sometime in the late 1890s, it came out that he had never left Germany. So so all of these travel biographies, including a whole bunch of them to the Middle East, where he was traveling under another Arab synonym, um, all of this was entirely made up, and Germans were scandalized. But it, it didn't change his popularity. And so I'm born in 1980. In my generation, I think he was starting to be a little bit less influential. My books are actually my father's books. So my father handed down all his old books to me. Um, But in earlier generations of of Germans, so Albert Einstein said he did nothing but read Karl May novels as a 14-year-old. Ralph Dahrendorf, whose biography I read once, uh, he, he was a sociologist who ended up becoming the head of the London School of Economics. He talks about them at length in his biography, how much they influenced him. And so I think that's what it is. I think that's why Germans have a sort of affinity for these sort of Wild West stories.
1: Well, it's wonderful to know that Albert Einstein uh, could be uh, a con or, or at least have interest uh, in what was ultimately, uh, I gather, a, a pretty obvious fraud, but evidently uh, wonderfully well done and contributing to the culture of Germany and, and uh, sending people to, uh, to Canada and the United States.
0: Well, generationally, that was already out at the time. So I think young Albert Einstein made a conscious choice to read the novels of a person he already knew to be a con man.
1: We've been talking with Professor Christian Dippel at uh, UCLA Anderson. Uh, This is the How the World Works uh, podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. And Professor, it's just fascinating to listen to you. And uh, thank you so much for taking such an interest in this. And the origin of your interest is in itself a matter of dramatic uh, concern and interest. Thank you for making it so clear and understandable.
0: Thank you very much.